Hey, this is Phil from Sacred Reich, and you're listening to the Miserable Failure Podcast. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Miserable Failure Podcast. I am your host, Michael X. Krusty, and this is brought to you by Krusty Media. If you're listening to this right now, the minute it came out, it is Friday of the long weekend, and it's going to be a beautiful weekend, a beautiful, fun weekend. And what better way to celebrate the weekend than with a Miserable Failure podcast soundtrack? That is right. I am excited. I am stoked for this episode. I talked to my friend Daniel DK. He is a guitar player thrasher. In Diamonds, he's in Exciter. He has his own Twitch stream that's doing very fucking well. He's on NotFest Twitch stream as well with his new show, Defender of the Riff. And he's on Banger TV. I am super excited to talk to him. He's got a great story about his upcomings, his upbringings, whatever you want to call it. But first, we're going to play a Diamond song. And this song is called Hell is Full.
I'm going to start it right there with a, ah, you're just sipping on your coffee. I am. I, Mr. I just, Daniel DK. Yeah, a heavily caffeinated Daniel DK has appeared. How are you doing? Well, I'm on my uh, fourth double espresso shot. So that, what does that equate to? Eight normal people coffees? Yeah, but you're not a normal person, so. I'm a freak of nature. I'm just assuming you're wearing tight jeans, you have no sleeves on, big hair, and you're just running back and forth around the room, zooming around from all that caffeine. Okay, so I'm definitely wearing nothing but a pair of municipal waist shorts. I have nothing on otherwise, no other articles of clothing. My hair literally looks like I fucking jumped out of an airplane yesterday. And uh, I am currently walking around my apartment, chain smoking weed and drinking coffee. Well, you heard it here first, ladies. I have there, it there literally. Yeah, I literally have you in my pocket and you're on headphones so I can walk around. That's perfect. I anxiously pace all the time. Yeah. It has nothing to do with the caffeine, though. It has nothing to do with the caffeine. Don't even. Th- I was going to say the caffeine and the weed balance each other out, right? That's it, man. That's it. We have a lot to talk about because you're kind of like me where you're doing everything. You're doing so much. You're constantly busy. You're always busy. You told me that you've already had like 14 meetings today. So I mean, three, but yes, (laughs) you know, you have to do everything. It's the only way and the way that whatever industry you're in now, the way it works, you know, less hands on deck means, you know, the, the $7 that you make is split with less people. So it's always important to do everything yourself. I think it's an invaluable skill priceless skill, if you will, to be able to do everything in any industry. If you're fucking, if you want to work in a restaurant, you better know how to wash dishes, take orders and cook a fucking pancake. If you want to work in the music industry, you better know how to design some merch. You better know how to fucking have a social media presence and write some songs as well. You know, you got to have, you got to know how to talk to people. You got to know how to book shows. You got to know how to network. I think that people should really take their careers into their own hands more often and be as overworked, underslept and stressed out as I am at all times. You do have a great social media presence and you write banger tunes and you're, you're constantly working and talking and meeting new people. And so I think you're doing everything right. I appreciate that, buddy. I'm trying. I'm fucking trying. You know, a lot of trial and error to get here. Let's not forget um, in my uh, officially in my 10th year of, uh, of doing whatever the hell this is. So, um, and let's yeah. start there. Let's go back. Let's go back. Okay. So, so sure. you're a young lad just outside of Ottawa, Ontario playing yeah, the yeah, guitar. I mean, yeah. What got you into heavy metal? Well, like the heavy metal journey starts really in childhood. I was fortunate to be one of those people that had, uh, parents that were into music, not musicians, but parents that were into music. They're not musical at all, not artistic, but you know, my dad had a pretty banging fucking cassette and CD and vinyl collection. My mom was all about 80s pop stuff. Like I had like a great understanding of all the essential, even from your rock bands, like she was into Genesis and stuff, but also like all all the classic, like there's so much Madonna in my life. There was so much Michael Jackson in my life. There's so much solo era, Peter Gabriel in my life. You know, like I got all all that shit from my mom and hanging out with my dad. We're banging fucking uh, ACDC and goddamn Kiss and Led Zeppelin and Judas Priest and Iron Maiden, like all the classics. So, I mean- I was very fortunate that I didn't really have to discover a lot of the classics on my own. I had it really at my fingertips. Even by the age of eight, my Walkman, I was already walking around with, literally, I had Highway to Hell, Judas Priest, Sin After Sin, and uh, Ted Nugent, Greatest Gonzos, all on my Walkman when I was like, you know, a kid, eight years old. So Wow, that's great. Was, and Yeah, I was really lucky. I even still have the Sin After Sin cassette my dad gave me, my first ever cassette. The introduction to music, like, Honestly, dude, I'm not even exaggerating. By like 
by eight years old, I was already having friends over for sleepovers and choreographing and planning entire music videos to like a song. So we'd take like a kiss song and I'd distribute tennis rackets to everyone or hockey sticks or fucking frying pans. And these were our instruments and we would perform music videos for my family as like, I've been obsessed with music since I could fucking formulate that sentence. You know, when I was a kid, I would choreograph songs too and make my cousins or my friends that were over perform with me. So that's pretty hilarious. Was it around eight when you got your first piece of Kiss memorabilia? Between six and eight, some really important stuff happened with Kiss. They did the reunion tour in 1996, which made Psycho Circus. 96 is the reunion, which uh, they go on stage at the fucking Grammys with Tupac. It's like they're relevant again. They've got the makeup back on. And then by, um, by 1998, they're already putting out another studio album and touring. And then by 2001, when I was 10 years old, they were doing the farewell tour with the original lineups. So that was my first Kiss concert is in 2001. But by 98, I'm like fully into the Kiss thing. I got Psycho Circus the day it came out. That was like the big fucking Hanukkah present that year was the big Psycho Circus, uh, <laughs> the big Psycho Circus CD, fucking deluxe CD with a 3D cover and all that shit. And, you know, the big music video was on MTV or much music at the time, all the time. So big kiss energy starting at between the ages of eight and 10, like for real, it was crazy. And then, you know, 10 years old, I see them in the flesh and it, it all goes downhill from there. Fucking spirals out of control. How many pieces do you have now of kiss memorabilia? I have no fucking idea. Too many. Like more than a hundred? Way more than a hundred. Do you have the kiss casket? No, no. Are we're gonna, saving that one for when I die. But you want it, right? That's the only way to be buried, if you ask me. <laughs> How many times have you worn kiss makeup? Several. Definitely several. Uh, from On like, stage? On stage. Uh, have I ever done it on stage? No, I've worn Juggalo makeup on stage once for Halloween. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. We played in Oshawa on Halloween once with diamonds and uh, we all dressed up as last minute. We're like, oh, fuck, it's Halloween. We should do something Halloween-y. So we dressed up as Juggalos. I wore like a triple XL Pantera shirt with a fucking big weed leaf on it and tied a bandana around my head. And I basically drew the Zach Wild bullseye Les Paul design on my face, a white base and then black circles on my face. I created my own Juggalo character. You're very creative. No, I'm not. Very creative. I just rip off things that excite me. Okay, that works. Yeah, we've all done that. Everything is a remix. That's, a, that's an actual saying. When did you pick up guitar? And were you the founding member of Diamonds? No, no, no. So check it out. So I go through... So I'm into music at that young age. We're talking, as we just talked, super young, already like into listening, consuming music. I get an acoustic guitar, but I can't fucking do anything with it. I'm just like futzing around on it. At first, I was convinced I was left-handed as well. So I was playing everything upside down and stuff. Obviously, that faded real quickly. And I just learned how to play normal. I get my first real acoustic guitar when I'm like 13 years old. No lessons or anything. By 15, I'm like kind of, you know, already toying with the idea of like lying to people in high school that I knew how to play guitar. I was already like telling other bands like, yeah, man, like I totally like, I let's jam sometimes. So I'd like, I started hanging out with these guys in grade nine, these brothers from Germany. Yeah, so we, you know, we, we, we started jamming like some very poor covers in their basement. They played great. I played like crap. Uh, Bodum, fucking Priest, uh, The Darkness, Slayer, Kiss, Maiden, you know, Annihilator, like whatever, like old school cheesy metal or modern metal, whatever came to mind. We were just jamming tunes and they had a lineup and I wasn't good enough to be in their band 
but I convinced them to like, let me hang around with them and like roadie and like sell merch. And like, eventually that turned into managing and eventually that turned into booking. And then, you know, one day after managing the band for a while, one day the bass player quit. And so it was like, yo, I play bass in this band now. And they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like no one else is allowed to play bass in this band except for me. I've put in the years, let me play bass in the band. So I start playing bass in that band and we do a bunch of shows and this is still in Ottawa and I'm like still like just fresh out of high school. No, I skipped over all the bullshit bands I played in during high school because who cares? And then I get a call. I'm like literally confused. I'm going to university. I fucking hate it. My grades are terrible because I keep skipping midterms to go on tour with uh, this band Aggressor. We're going to like, we do like a, a week and a half run of the East Coast and I'd miss three midterms and then fail all three classes. You know, like it was a huge, a huge fucking waste of university money. I was clearly doing something I was unhappy with and just going through the motions just to figure out my life, stocking shelves at a store for a job, like not ideal. And I got a call from Toronto. It was CeCe Diamond, who I had met in passing. I was playing in a band that would play in Toronto. And, you know, we'd met in passing. We'd gotten along, had a couple beers, played some pinball together before. And he was like, hey, do you want to audition for Diamonds on bass? And I'm like, yeah, Hundo P, let's get involved. So I went to Toronto with a backpack. Nothing else. I didn't even bring a bass with me. I went with a backpack. And that was 10 years ago. <laughs> It just like really organically happened. Like I came, I auditioned, it was great. I went home, I packed a couple more t-shirts and then I came and I basically started couch surfing in Toronto and just living here. I never actually moved out. You were the bass player first. First of all, I didn't know that. And I didn't even know you were an aggressor because I was in a heavy metal band in the aughts called Endorphins and we played with aggressor there a you bunch go. of times. I played play, play bass in that band. Club Rocket and all that crap. Oh, you know it, buddy. I was there. Hilarious play bass for like the first year and a half. So in the rough, are you, you're not on that album then? No, that, no, that predates. That's like 2009. Yeah. So I, I come into the band uh, 2011. We start touring the bad pack sometime in and around there. The album's done in 2011, but we released it in 2012 on underground operations. You're kind of more of like a sleazy rock metal band signed to, to underground operations. Was that a weird label to be signed to? Or were you guys like, whatever, that's a label. Let's do it. They had more punk bands. Yeah, so it excited us mainly for two reasons. Uh, one, at the time, Mark Spickaluk was like a very, very, very uh, hype name in the industry. And, you know, Underground had a huge name because of protest and because of lights and because of all the other big things they had been doing. So for us, it was like very exciting. A Toronto label with real people that we can you know, Dan Hand and Mark Spickaluk, people that we could meet up with at the bovine to have a drink and talk about business. Like it was a very local label. It felt right. Obviously we're huge fans of protests and all the success they've had. Obviously I've had a huge fucking crush on lights for, you know, her entire career. So I was really stoked <laughs> to maybe I'd get to meet her at a label Christmas party or something, you know, like all these things we were really excited. And at the time, Underground Operations was about to do a merger and have their catalog distributed by Universal Records. So not only was it getting signed to UO, it was like when anyone asks, hey, where can I get your record? It's like, oh, you can get it in every major record store in the world. We're in the Universal catalog. So that was it just made cool. sense. Yeah, it, made, it sense, made sense. Totally. And you know what, man, they, they were they were excited too. they were excited to sign a band that was sort of out of the realm of punk or, or pop, whatever they had been doing. So it was a great relationship. It was really wasn't it was honestly a fucking handshake deal in the beginning. It was fucking awesome. Like 50 50 handshake deal. 
no merch cut, like real honest punk rock DIY type deal with them. And it was exactly what we needed at the time. They helped us immense amounts. And Dan Hand, who we met through that, you know, long after the folding of underground operations, Dan Hand would go on to manage our band. So, I mean, you know, it, it was all really meant to be. Did he have a part of you guys signing with Napalm Records after or? Yeah, so Napalm offered us a deal and Dan was able to negotiate for us um, to get Napalm to release the album. Three labels released Never Want to Die in different territories. We got Napalm for Europe, Spiritual Beast for Japan, and E1 Entertainment for North America, which was very cool. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Obviously, E1, massive label as well. So from the beginning to end of Diamonds, the relationship we had with the people we met at Underground Operations, even though we only did one record with them, in theory, we made the right choice. We turned down, we actually turned down two other record labels in the beginning. It's always nice to have options, you know? Yeah, we had options and we made the right choice, 100%. One of them was Victory Records. Don't even fucking, you know, not even a fucking (laughs) option. Yeah, no. We turned down another label, which was a great label as well. I'm only going to shout out the shitty one. That's Victory. Records, V-I-C-T-O-R-Y. <laughs> so, you know, that was a hard no from all of us, obviously, and all our friends who'd had terrible experiences with them. But we were stoked on the UO offer and we went with them and it totally worked out, man. It was the start of a very long and fruitful relationship.
Never Want to Die. You guys had producer Eric Ratz, which is just huge for a Canadian band to have Eric Ratz. It's just massive. How was it working with Ratz? It was awesome. It was my first time ever working with a producer, like in any capacity like that at all, really. Some people call themselves producers and such. Like, hey, I'm the producer, but you're more of just an engineer. Like Eric Ratz is a a fucking Juno award-holding producer, multiple Juno awards. Guy's an absolute legend. So it was real cool to record in phase one, which is one of the nicest studios, RIP, one of the nicest studios in the country. Worked with Harry Hess as well on that record. Unbelievable musician. What did Harry Hess do? We did drum tracking at phase one. And then we did guitars and vocals and bass at Harry's studio, which is Vespa. And Harry helped a shitload with the vocal harmonies. Like he's... He's an amazing singer. Yeah, like unbelievable musician. And it would be embarrassing. Sometimes he'd like bust out on the keyboard and he'd be like, DK, play something like this and play it on the keyboard better than I could play it on guitar. It was like ridiculous. His contributions on the album vocally were like unbelievable. And when we went on tour and we had to replicate all those vocal harmonies live, he recorded us like isolated vocal parts of him singing the harmonies so that we could practice to those. Like really, really, really couldn't have done it without him. He's given you everything to succeed, basically. Absolutely. And so fucking talented. Are you guys still under contract with Napalm? Nope. We got dropped after Never Want to Die. They had an option. They didn't renew. Do you think Diamonds would have been more successful if you guys were an American band? Interesting question. Very interesting question. Canadian music is great, and there's tons of great Canadian bands. It's always very hard to get into that American market and the UK market, but it seems like it's much easier for American bands that play your type of music to get into the Canadian market and, you know, the South American market and the UK market and all that. So I think that the question goes two ways. Yes. Obviously, if we were an American band constantly touring the US, uh, perhaps we would have had more global success just because of the nature of the industry. Can't deny that. Even some of our biggest bands, some of our Billy Talents, our Sum 41s, uh, our fuck, let's go, let's go historically, let's go Rush, let's go the Tragically Hip, let's talk about the Guess Who, all these Canadian bands, while some do break into that global market, a lot of them never achieved the fame and success they had at home abroad. And, you know, that's saying a lot when you're talking about giant bands. Like I know I've had numerous conversations with uh, Ian from Billy Talent, just talking about, you know, when they finally did break in Germany, because it took some fucking time. They were playing massive shows here and the biggest band in the country here, but they'd go over to Germany and they couldn't pull fucking club numbers. So, you know, talking to people in established bands from Canada and hearing that breaking into those other scenes is a real thing. So obviously, yes. Would it have been easier as an American band? Sure. I guess, you know, we can hypothesize that. But there's something that you can't discredit. And that's the Canadian government money. Factor. Factor grants, much fact grants. You you can't fucking discredit these types of arts grants that are available. And, you know, some of my American friends, when I mentioned the grants, they're like, wait, what the fuck are you talking about? Never want to die couldn't have happened without the financial support of Factor Canada and going to the Junos and getting all that paid for through government and arts agencies based in Canada. Really, really, really huge stuff happening here in Canada that that keeps us alive. You know, if we were just an American band, maybe we would have never made it at all because we would have never been able to afford to make a record that sounded that good. Maybe we would have been caught in the underground forever, never would have gotten the recognition of a Juno nomination, never would have gotten the radio play in in the certain territories that we got. And, you know, I will say, 
when we finally do go over to the UK in 2017, some of the best shows we've ever played in our lives. Classic Rock Magazine in the UK was one of the first publications to embrace us right from the original EP. That's a major publication showing us love. So when we went to the UK, they were honestly some of the best shows we'd ever played ever. I don't have any like negative feelings about being a Canadian band or what could have been if we were a band from New York City or LA. Like the dream was always you go down to LA and play shows. It's fun to go and play the whiskey, but I don't know if by living there, we would have had a better shot at more success. I really think that we did well for what we were, what we set out to achieve. I think we certainly achieved it. I got to play with some of my heroes from Motley Crue and Sebastian Bach to goddamn Kiss, you know, touring with Steel Panther going all the way to the Junos, being televised, having these incredible music videos that never would have been possible without the, the Much Factor grants from the government, like high-budget music videos, getting played on Much Loud and you know the radio play, all that stuff. I'm hella thankful for all that. And a lot of that would have never happened if we weren't in Canada. So fucking, oh, Canada, man. Fucking really, really proud and really proud and thankful to be from this country. Absolutely. Yeah, that video for Secret wouldn't have happened without. Absolutely not. 100% would never have happened without a factor grant. I could not believe how many people were on set for that. That was insane. We'd never done a video like that before. What's the future hold for diamonds or is there even a future? I mean, there's always a future. Never say never, never say die, never want to die. Wow, I never realized how well that fits with a little- It you know, does. Aussie to diamonds. You know, man, you know, never say never. I don't know what it holds exactly. We've had numerous conversations about doing new music, numerous conversations about doing some one-off shows. Yes, it's just conversations for now, but the fact that we're even talking about it and open to it leads me to believe that something will happen when the time is right. Somewhere while you're touring and playing shows and, and doing all that stuff with Diamonds, you magically appeared on Banger TV and I remember watching Lockhorns one day and Sam Dunn is talking and he's like, this is the thrash dude. And it's just, you know, the, the guy with the big fro talking about how much he loves thrash from Diamonds. How did that happen? You're doing Lockhorns, you're doing overkill reviews. You're the only one who's doing interviews too. So how did that all happen? Um, so as you say, I went in for that Lockhorns episode for thrash. It was my first ever appearance on the channel. I went in on the context of being a one-time guest. I went in, had a blast, had met Sam in passing before at local shows. Of course, he played in a local band called Burn to Black. He's been a fixture at metal shows forever, as long as I can remember. The amount of times I've seen him walking up and down Roncesvalles Avenue, throwing the horns like, Slayer! Like you do. Now, so he's always been around, but it was the first time I really met him was doing that thrash Lockhorns episode. So I went into the studio, met, you know, Lisa Latticer, who's an absolute legend in her own right as well. Met her for the first time, met Sam for the first time officially. And we did that one hour program together and it went great. And I had a blast and, you know, that was that. So I left, I had a fun time. A week later, I get an email from Lisa, the producer. Daniel, we have good guests and then we have great guests. Are you interested in appearing on Banger TV again? perhaps becoming a co-host on one of our live programs here, Live Lockhorns. And that conversation went on. And next thing you knew, I was signing a contract. It was really honestly, organically, and I'm super thankful that they recognized that I was enthusiastic about it. And I'm super honored that they, you know, they had all these different guests come on the show before, and I'm the guy they offer the contract to. It felt very validating for my years of getting teased for being too much of a fucking weirdo metalhead freak who like walking encyclopedia about thrash. Like it was finally paying off for being that weirdo, you know? Um, <laughs> so it was cool. It was cool. Felt really good to be validated by them because I mean, 
they're the Bible on, on heavy metal here in the media and film world. Absolutely. I mean, whose life wasn't changed by metal, a headbanger's journey, whose life wasn't changed by global metal. It's like, these are, these are films that changed my life. Absolutely. My friend, I have a Sam Dunn story for you. I love a Sam Dunn story. Yeah. Back, like I said, I was in the band Endorphins and uh, we were playing lots of shows in, you know, 2005, 2006, 2000, yeah, 4, 2007. And we kept playing shows with this band, Burnt to Black. And Sam Dunn was the bass player. He was a very nice guy, very nice gentleman. The, the whole band was very nice. We'd always play shows with them. And then, you know, I'd call them the next day. Hey, we got this other show booked. Sometimes they'd be like, oh, we, I can't do that show. I'm flying to Norway. I can't do it. And he didn't really say why. I was like, okay, cool. Well, you know, next time we'll play a show. And it kept happening. Oh, I, I got to fly here. I got to fly there. And then a Headbanger's Journey came out and I was like, oh shit. He was going to film this movie. He didn't really talk about it at all to anyone. It was kind of like a secret project. And we were on the same label as them too. There was like a small little label that had Burnt to Black and Endorphins. The End Records in New York. Anyways. Yeah, that is literally still a label too. Ah, there you go. They did uh, one of the last Cauldron records. That's a good one. That's a good story. Well, thank you. You've been around. See, when I first met you, I didn't realize how long you'd been around in, in the scene. I didn't realize your metal roots either. When I think of you, I think of you as a punk guy. I didn't really, I, you know, I didn't recall that your, your roots do lie in, in death metal. Yeah. I love that. As I've gotten to know you over the years, I, I now realize that. I bleed heavy metal. I still remember the first time I met you, you walked up to me at a show and you're like, hey man. I'm like, hi. You're like, <laughs> it's me, Krusty. I'm like, oh, it's good to put a face to the to the fucking social media name. That was at the opera house, I think. No, no, no. It was at the horseshoe. I literally remember it. Oh, with the horseshoe. You're right. It was the horseshoe. I don't remember what show it was, but I know it was the horseshoe. I was there alone as I go to all shows alone all the time. I think it was that cover band that does all the, the 80s hits. The really popular. Dwayne Gretzky. Dwayne Gretzky. Yeah. It's a good band. Yeah. Not a metal band. So anyone who's listening, who's into metal, don't even bother Googling them. You're in another band, a very uh, a popular Canadian band. Uh, started in, I did some research here, just so you know. All right, all right let's see how you do. Started in 78. He's read the Wikipedia, folks. <laughs> yes, I have. How did you get on their radar? Dan and, uh, and Alan, they were like, we need to get this guy DK to play guitar for us. How did that happen? Thankfully, I'm from the same hometown as them, from Ottawa. And uh, I knew I was very, very friendly with Dan's daughter growing up because we're about the same age. And, um, you know, it just fucking like Dan Beeler is like a local legend. Like we used to fucking hang out with him at the bar and fucking hear stories about him and James Hetfield and him and Lemmy and all these like legendary stories he'd share with us as a bunch of like fucking wide eyed thrasher teenage kids sitting around in a circle doing story story time with Dan Beeler. It was very, very cool growing up and having that relationship. So when... John Ricci, the original guitar player of Exciter, announced that he was going to retire. They got the original lineup back together. Exciter was on top of the world again. And then John exits the band. John fucking retires. And so, you know, Dan and Al wanted to keep it going. And it was literally a Facebook post. Al literally posted on Facebook. Hi, looking for a new guitar player. Wow. I know. I'm like, what the fuck? I'm like, are you kidding me, Al? Like, you're way too professional to be doing this. But I'll also, I'll bite. And I responded and I, I sent him a, a direct message. I'm like, hey, I'd like to be the guitar player. And he wrote, are you serious? And I wrote, I am 100 million percent serious. And uh, it felt like 48 hours later, I was already packing my shit to go down for a rehearsal. Going back to Ottawa. Going back to Ottawa. So I start in Ottawa. 
I get on the Greyhound bus to absolutely escape my miserable life there to chase the musical dream. And what does that musical dream in Toronto bring me all the way back to Ottawa to join a band that started there in 1978. So when you're playing live, because there's been lots of different changes in the band, lots of there was a period where Dan wasn't even in the band. When you're playing an Exciter show live, what albums are you playing songs from? We focus on the classic era of Exciter, which is the first four records. We focus on the Dan Beeler and Alan Johnson records, those first four, and the John Ricci, you know, we, we focus on that. Because John had his run with the band, put out a couple albums that don't have Dan on vocals, and that's cool. There's, I think that there was no animosity between the two of them. Dan and Al weren't into doing the band thing. John was. It was just different eras. Now the tables have turned, so we're back doing all of the original Beeler-fronted Exciter stuff. And what's really cool is... We play songs off the fourth record, Unveiling the Wicked, which uh, diehard Exciter fans are all yelling at their goddamn monitors or however they're listening to this right now. They're all yelling, you know, Brian McPhee, Brian McPhee. Yeah, so Brian McPhee was the guitar player on that album. So John Ricci never wanted to do those songs. So now with Exciter, we're doing songs from the first, you know, we're covering material from that fourth record that has never been done live since literally 1986, 1987. So that's really cool. That is really cool. It's like an extra little treat for all those diehard fans that haven't seen those songs live. And when I joined the band, a lot of diehard fans were saying like, hey, are you guys going to keep just playing the same set list from the first three albums? Or are you finally going to bring in shit from the fourth album? So now we're bringing, we do like four songs off the fourth album. So when you join the band and you're learning the Exciter songs, I'm sure you knew how to play a bunch of songs on guitar already, but how do you go from playing your own style to playing the Exciter guitar style and bringing your own flavor to it? Fuck, I'm still trying to figure that out. Uh, it's not that easy. John Ricci is a very unique style of guitar playing, a very unique style of tone, a very unique style of riffing, very unique style of picking. You know, there's a reason why Exciter is as highly regarded and has the staying power that it does is because it truly was something new and exciting when it first came out. It was something like no one had ever heard before. So a um, lot of pressure on me to try and mimic that. So I stopped trying to mimic it because that's not how I play guitar. I don't play like that at all. So I've really adapted the songs to sound. I mean, the guitar playing sounds different. You know, the diehards sit there and they're like, yeah, you play a lot cleaner than John. You know, you don't use as much high end. Your sound is a lot more compressed and rounded. I, I spend more time in the EQ. I use different gear. So I sound very different. But what I do is I try and bring that original attitude and that original punk erratic style of playing. And I try and follow the solo structures as close as possible. Like I really do try and be true to what John did create, but also I try and bring it into the modern world a little more. I'm using more modern gear, in my opinion, uh, using a, a cleaner, better sounding tone. Because for when that music came out, it was like nothing had ever existed like that before. But for now, you know, there's, a, there's different gear available and there's different standards of what bands sound like. I think that all bands that released music in the 80s that play it now, it sounds different, you know, just- Yeah, oh, yeah. Look, look at anyone, look at anyone, right? I bring a more modern flair to it, I think. A lot more palm muting as well. John was like very open strumming all the time. I do bring a lot more like chuggy palm muted thrash vibes to it, which I think makes it sound cleaner, tighter, and more aggressive. And so far, not too many complaints aside from, you know, the Euro diehards. There's always going to be the Euro diehards who don't think I'm true enough. And that's fine, man. That's cool, man. They, they can come over to my place and see the, you know, the original 1984 Exciter posters all over my wall and they can see the record collection and then decide if I'm true or not. But, you know, you can't win them all. And the fact, you know what? I'm a Kiss fan. 
So I get it. I look at fucking Tommy Thayer and I'm like, no matter how good a guitar Tommy Thayer is, he'll never be ace. So I get it. I get why fans, you know, I'm not trying to replace John. I'm not John. I am my own person. And this is our own version of Exciter. You're doing something right when you have people that hate what you're doing. That means you're very successful at what you're doing. I like and they're that. just, they're just fucking jealous. Well, good. People hate what I do all the time. So it must be great. I hate what you do. I hate what I do too. <laughs> Happy, 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 happy,
you joined the band in 2008. Uh, 2019, you, you get some touring under your belt. You go to Europe. Did you do any cruises or anything like that as well? I did cruises in 18 and 19 with Diamonds, but I didn't do any cruises with Exciter yet. You went to Europe with Exciter. Oh, yeah. Fuck, a bunch of times. Went to, went to Japan, went to Europe, went to South America, did a bunch of North American shit. Have you been a part of like writing new stuff? Is there going to be any new Exciter material coming out? Yes. Yeah, so like, I mean, the, the, the plan this year was to release an out al- the plan last year essentially was to release an album and go play a hundred shows in support of the album. Obviously that never happened. Well, I really haven't seen those guys in, you know, a, a, once in the last year I've seen them because with Al living in Quebec and Dan living in Ontario and in Ottawa and me living in Toronto, traveling in general, being very frowned upon and I don't own a car. So then it's like, how am I even getting there? I'm not comfortable really flying through all this. And, you know, the train is absolutely fucking punishing and don't even get me started on the bus. So there was like, you know, and for a while we couldn't even, it was against the law for Al to cross that Quebec, Ontario border. So it was very frustrating and we're not the most technologically advanced band. So writing and demoing online together is not as easy as it is for some groups, which is fine. I don't mind getting into the jam space together, but it's just the fact that we haven't been able to do that And the producer that we wanted to use is American-based. And we were going to go down to their studio. So you can't do that either. Pretty much everything got put on hold this last year and this year. Everything got put on hold. All of our shows have been bumped to the, you know, from last year to this year. And now they're getting bumped from this year to next year. You know, whatever it is, it's going to be a long time before you see us back on the road. But the plan is to do it with a new album. That's, That's the plan. That's a great plan. So there you have it for all, everyone who loves Exciter and, and, and wants to hear new material. Eventually, you're going to get new material and you're going to get a full-blown tour. So we just need the industry to kind of fucking, you know, just get, get a little more stable. I mean, there's people who are announcing tours right now and there's people who are doing shows right now. But, you know, we're not uh, we're not ready. We're, we're, we're waiting it out till it's, it's a little more stable. Safe. Yeah, for yeah, sure. We're, and, we're, and wait, we're waiting for that stable. That's safe. We're not rushing it. We've been in this for a year now. We're going to continue down this path. We're going to respect the guidelines and respect people's safety and respect our safety. And we're going to do this right. We're not going to rush into it. We've waited this long. What's another couple months, right? Exactly. It's been 10 years. Yeah, exactly. 10 years. What's another year? Yeah. Since you you have nowhere to go, I know you love playing guitar and you love talking to people and you love interacting with people. You started a Twitch account where you stream at least four or five times a week live where you just play guitar. You crush a guitar. You're probably better guitar now than you were when the pandemic started. What made you want to start a Twitch account and just stream yourself playing guitar live? Well, I mean, at the start of the pandemic, I was literally picking up a guitar and putting it down three minutes later. When you have nothing to practice for and you've got nothing to look forward to on a professional level, it makes it very hard to be creative and to get into working on your craft. I needed to start playing again and I needed to make some money. I had no no income, a lot of income taken away from canceled shows this year. It felt like a natural transition to try and dip my toes into the live streaming thing. And I started just very, uh, with like a soft launch and just sort of announcing lightly that I was doing it. And, you know, using a nine-year-old MacBook because I was super bad at tech. I had no idea what I was doing. Here we are fucking 11 months later, literally 11 months later. And the stream has blown up to a point where I could have never even fucking imagined my wildest dreams. So was there someone who said, Hey, you should try doing Twitch or was that where you just like Googling one day and that came up? 
it's been on my radar for years because of Blaine. Blaine from Banger has been on Twitch for years and years and years. So it's always been on my radar and we, we kind of toyed with the idea. I'm like, hey, you got to show me how to set it up. And I went over to his house and I watched him stream. I hung out. I started an account and never streamed. It was just kind of lurking around. And then I have this buddy, Jeff, who was like, nah, man, like he was the final, the, you know, the real push I needed. He came to my house with a keyboard and a mouse because I didn't even own one of those. And he came with a keyboard and a mouse and an audio interface and a webcam and said, here you go, do this. And he helped me set it all up and get the tech ready. And, you know, I'd never owned a PC before. So he helped me get my first PC. Just really Jeff, like, you know, Blaine turned me onto the platform and Jeff really fucking hammered it home. You know, fuck, here we are now. I'm like, it's crazy. The growth I've seen on Twitch, man. You wouldn't believe it. It's fucking insane. We got almost almost 10,000 followers on there now. I'm averaging anywhere from 160 to 200 viewers per stream and more. Yesterday, my pal Herman Lee from Dragon Force dropped by my stream with 750 of his friends. Wow, yeah. You gotta love those raids. I had like almost a thousand. Yeah, I had fucking almost a thousand people watching me yesterday. I had Chris Davis from The Ghost Inside come by. Mike Martin from All That Remains come by. We had Grant Truesdale from Unleash the Archers. Juno nominated as of this week. Congrats to them. He came by the stream yesterday. Mike Leon from Soulfly came by the stream. He's also plays in The Absence. You got Matt Hafey from Trivium popping in. Gene Hoagland from All Your Favorite Bands popping in. Jason Bittner. Jason Bittner from Overkill, Flotsam and Jetsam, Shadows Fall. You know, it's really a star-studded event. We had, um, if, you're, if you're familiar with Ray Lil Black, she was, in, she was in our stream yesterday. She came into the stream and dropped a bunch of biddies. We had that band, that American rock band, Chevelle, came into the fucking stream last night. They, they were gifting subs in our stream. Yes, wow. that's Chevelle. I know, ridiculous, right? Like, I'm talking, these are fucking star-studded affairs. We got... Uh, Scotty from fucking Fallujah comes by all the time. It's really crazy, man. We got... It sounds like a party. It sounds like a hangout. It's fun. And people can interact with everyone. It's like literally like the coolest catering tent at the coolest festival you've ever seen is what I can compare the chat to. It's just like Artist World. Artist World at any festival where everybody's catching up, talking about what they've been up to, all these people from all over the world gathering in one designated area. That's what my chat room feels like. And on top of it, I'm just playing live music and, and telling fucking dumb tour, tour stories as the soundtrack to that hang. It's really, it's really interesting. Twitch is like so much more about engagement and community than people realize. Like what I'm doing on the stream is almost secondary. What's really amazing is what's happening in the chat. All these people from all over the world, musicians, fans, and everything in between interacting with each other in real time. It's very fucking cool, man. Does it feel the need to want to like perform and interact with people for you? Absolutely. Without a doubt, the energy transfer that I get on stage from performing to live audiences is uh, 100% comparable to the energy transfer that I get from excitement in the chat while I'm streaming on Twitch. Twitch is fucking incredible, man. I gotta ask, what's with uh, Hall of the Mountain King? By I sabotage. Know. I don't know. You just end your Twitch with it all the time? Is There's yeah, no reason? Know. I don't know. Well, I mean, it's perhaps one of the most ridiculous songs of all time. Okay, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Okay. Show me another song that has something as ridiculous as that and the music video to pair it with. Yes. You know? Like, show me another song that's that ridiculous in the realm of heavy metal and maybe I'll consider switching my song. But Sabotage's Hall of the Mountain King with the... Ah, ah, like, it's just unbelievable. It makes no sense. 
I don't get it. It's one of the most badass and outlandish things I've ever seen in my life in the history of heavy metal. So why not end with that every single stream? And, you know, you know what we do with it. We've turned it into a whole thing. Yeah, it works. It works. But for anyone who's listening, you need to go to uh, YouTube and you need to watch people watching that video. The reaction videos to that You're video. You're the one who turned me on to those reaction videos. They're hilarious. Yeah. It is so funny. Like, I, I just die laughing all the time. So I really appreciate that you you put it at the end of the stream. Usually when you're you're real high off the marijuanas and you've had a couple of soda pops in you and it just, you know, things are a little bit loosey-goosey and it's just a fun time for sure. I remember when I heard that song for the first time, I went on tour with Cauldron selling merch. I had my 18th or my 19th birthday with Cauldron on the road selling merch for them in an East Coast Canadian tour and on one of the long ass drives between New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. Jason Decay put on Sabotage in the Hall of the Mountain King. And just, he was like air drumming and doing the eh. And uh, <laughs> it was just fucking ridiculous. And like, I, I'll never forget that moment. I'm like, what is this? When you go back on tour eventually, are you going to continue with the, the Twitch thing? Oh yeah, there's no way I'm stopping the Twitch thing. You know, just going to go full force with violence. Violence and force. It's <laughs> well done. Good pun. It's fun. It's currently paying my bills completely. It is my full-time fucking job. I spend 60 hours a week on Twitch and also working on the back end of Twitch. It's become such a massive part of my life. I will not give it up when we go back on tour. Well, it's great that you found your calling and, and it's working out for you. I'm very excited for you. I appreciate that. Where can people find you on Twitch? Daniel underscore DK. That's D-E-K-A-Y. And uh, what about the rest of your social medias? Literally Everywhere on the internet, I'm at Daniel underscore DK, D-E-K-A-Y. And for those of you who don't know how to spell Daniel, because literally I like I meet some of my guitar heroes at Nam, etc. And I'll be like, hey, can you sign that to Daniel? And they spell Daniel wrong. So D-A-N-I-E-L underscore D-E-K-A-Y. Perfect. That's all the spots, the Instagrams, the Twitters. The TikToks, the TikTokings, the TikToks, the TikToks the of the ticks, and <laughs> I think those are all the social medias. How about the Twitter, the tweets? But, yeah, the, I'm, I'm, I Twitch. I know I Twitter, I Twitter, and I Twitch, and I Instagram, and I TikTok. Do it all. I'm a man of many hats. I am a jerk of all trades and a master of none. The man with all hats and no sleeves. Absolutely. Sleeves are for fucking suckers. Friends don't let friends wear sleeves. You're lucky I don't come over there right now with a pair of scissors and cut your sleeves off. <laughs> Why you have sleeves? You don't need sleeves. Show off them guns, baby. Next time I see you, I'll bring all of the shirts I've ever owned. We can cut them all off. Yeah, I've got those good fabric scissors. We'll fucking slice right through them. Perfect. I cut them a little nippy, though, so I hope you're okay with nip slips. That's cool. I, I, don't, really, I don't really keep things PG. Great. And neither do I. What is PG? <laughs> well, thanks for being on the show. Dude, Krusty, thank you so much as always. It's always a pleasure to chat. Yeah.
If you're listening to this tune and you're rocking out, I just want to say this is the song. This is Sabotage, Hall of the Mountain King. And the best part is coming up. And, uh, you know, I want to do it the same way DK does it on his channel there right at the end. I want everyone to scream at the same time. So before we go, I just want to say thanks to Daniel DK for hanging out and chatting with me. It was a blast. I love you, brother. And a uh, big shout out to Steve Risen. Thanks for being the technical producer on this episode and all the other episodes. This has been Miserable Failure. Are you guys ready? Let's do this together. Let's do this together. Here we go. Hey, let's go the fuck outside. Measure my failure!